Mata Maria, welcome to First Up. It is Ra Pare, that is Thursday, the 13th of October. Kor Nathan Rarere, I hope. Coming up, we'll be in Ukraine and Russia as attacks on key infrastructures continue. We're also going to meet the 23-year-old who, become, who could become the youngest mayor in the country today. The Deputy Prime Minister Grant Robertson is in the USA and we speak to him there. And Ruapehu businesses say the government should step in to help ski field operator RAL stay afloat to avoid disaster for the district. For years we just sit here and listen to how poor it is for Queenstown and poor old Queenstown and poor old Queenstown. Well hey, we had an eruption that affected our businesses, we didn't get any handouts. We we need assistance and, and that assistance is going to benefit everybody. Atamaria, welcome to First Up. I'm Nathan Rarere and we begin this morning in Russia where authorities have announced arrests in relation to the bridge explosion in Crimea last weekend. So to tell us about that, in Moscow right now is our correspondent Stuart Smith. Morena Stuart, thank you very much for being here. What, what do we know about these eight people who were arrested? Well, this all comes from the FSB, what used to be known as the KGB in the Soviet Union, and they're responsible for security within Russia. They say they've now detained five Russians and three Armenians and Ukrainians, uh, most likely two Ukrainians, with 12 suspects in total. It's a lot. And the reason is, according to the FSB, the way that this truck, which is believed to have got onto the bridge from the Russian side towards Crimea, is a very convoluted route. It started in the Ukrainian port of Odessa, the FSB says, where it was shipped to Bulgaria. It went from the west coast of the Black Sea to Georgia on the east coast went into Armenia, back into Georgia, and then across the land border into Russia, where it then entered the bridge. Filled inside the truck, uh, the FSB say, was 22 tonnes of explosive disguised uh, in polyethylene uh, plastic wrap. Uh, But one thing that the response has been from the countries involved, they say not a single, this is Georgia, not a single cargo of TNT, not a single truck or wagon with explosives, crossed the Georgian customs border. Armenia says it x-rayed the truck in question and no risk factors were found during the inspection. Ukraine has dismissed all the efforts, it says, of Russia's FSB and investigative committee as nonsense. Is that dangerous for them to question Russia in that way, though? I'm thinking these smaller countries here like Armenia and that, because that's them pretty much calling into it going, we we just don't believe that story you've said. Yeah, at the moment, that is. Now, Georgia and Russia have had a war before in 2008, and they still have disputes over territory. Armenia recently requested Russian support when there was an incursion by Azerbaijan into its territory. But uh, the CSTO, which is like the NATO for Central Asian nations, didn't respond. So both countries have their reasons at the moment to have fallings out with Russia. And both will be concerned anyway about the potential for broader destabilization in the region. But that's what they're sticking to. They say they don't have any evidence of that. Stuart, you know, in the days building up to that, we had heard perhaps that, gosh, you know, the Russian forces are looking a bit tired. Maybe things are, you know, that, you know, not going so well for them. So, so that attack, did that come as a shock to Moscow? It's funny. I think it did, even though the Ukrainian officials had explicitly said they were looking at the Crimean bridge as a target. But it was because they knew Ukraine was intensely interested in causing disruption there, as we now saw in the form of a bomb blast, it seems. It's still not been uh, it's still not been confirmed by Ukraine. Uh, they thought they were protected. Loads of measures have been taken by the Russian military and also security forces on the bridge to make sure that something like this shouldn't have happened. They have incredibly sophisticated equipment at both ends of the bridge for searching vehicles. The FSB even published a video of the truck 
being searched at the Russian end, but it seems none of those systems prevented the explosion. But you could see the lengths that these uh, Ukrainians allegedly went to in trying to hide where this truck had come from. All the paperwork had been forged to make this happen. At least 12 the FSB say people were involved. So it was a complicated operation, which Russia says had been going on since August one of the other parts of the war, of course, has been the uh, supply of gas uh, through to Europe. There, President Putin says Russia's ready to resume the supply of gas from the remaining Nord Stream um, pipeline. Uh, that's an interesting thing. What else has he said, Stuart? Yeah, that's right. So the, one of the routes still is operational and the Russian president, as he has done before, is very keen to get the Nord Stream 2 pipeline up and running. He says this provides the only way for Russia to get its gas through the Nord Stream route. And so Europe has the option to take it if it wants it. Of course, at the moment, the European Union is trying to do the opposite, trying to remove itself from Russian gas and oil. And so there seems to be no political will for that. But then during this energy conference that was taking place on Wednesday, he said to the surprise of Turkey, he's looking at some kind of pipeline that instead of sending gas from Russia through the Baltic Sea into Germany, he's saying they could make use of the Black Sea and go to Turkey. And then Turkey would become the biggest hub for Russia in getting gas to Europe. Uh, The Turkish energy minister was present at that conference. He said the idea was new to him, but should certainly be discussed. Uh, He said at the time it's too early to make an assessment. But the president did provide a caveat, a very important one. He said, first of all, if our partners are interested in this. And secondly, if it's economically feasible, which at the moment seems unlikely, especially with the EU trying to wean itself off Russian gas. Yeah, Stuart, thank you so much for your time, sir. Uh, Always a brilliant correspondent. That is Stuart Smith joining us from Moscow. It's 11 past five and you are listening to First Up here, probably in the safety of New Zealand here, uh, with me, Nathan Rarere. To Australia now, where survivors and victims of families have reflected uh, on the, tra- uh, sorry, and victims' families, sorry, have reflected on the trauma and impact of the Bali bombings. It was 20 years ago this week that 202 people were killed in the tourist district of Kuta after three separate explosions. 88 Australians, seven Americans and two New Zealanders were among the dead. The ABC's Gavin Coote looks at the wider impact of the Bali bombings 20 years on and the lingering fears of another terror attack. Hannadeth Luke was dancing at the Sari Club on Kuta Beach's tourist strip when a bomb exploded outside. She was then photographed helping one of the victims, 17-year-old Tom Singer, out of the ruins. My father said, oh, what were you wearing? And I said, oh, well, you know, uh, red shorts and a blue top. And he said, no, 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 on the night. He said, were you wearing a black singlet and beige shorts? I said, how on earth do you know that? And uh, that's when I learned that my picture with Tom Singer was on the front page of just about every newspaper on the planet. Tom Singer died a month later. Hannah Beth Luke's partner, Mark Gajardo, was also among the 88 Australians who died in the Bali bombings. Many tourists, including Australian sporting teams, had flocked to Kuta Beach and were celebrating their end-of-season break. Troy Howe was with his rugby teammates from Forbes in central west New South Wales. The rugby club and town lost three of its young men that night and is today holding a memorial service in Forbes. Look, it's, it's a difficult day every year. This year especially, I suppose, you know, 20 years, where does it go? It's, it's gone so quick. I mean, we get together every year and we... Um, we actually have a dawn service up at the cemetery. We're just us, us boys, uh, paying our respects to our mates, sort of thing. And we sort of getting together like that helps heaps, you know. We don't a lot of us are living away now, so we don't see each other um, other than once a year. But you know, once we all get back together, it's sort of like we we, we haven't really uh, 
missed them that much sort of thing. But, um, yeah, it, it, it's, it's a tough day. But, like, when we get together, we don't sort of sit there and, you know, talk about the bad times and all that sort of stuff. We sort of get to, you know, remember the good times we had with our, our mates that are missing. And that's three people in a small country town. That must have left a real hole in that community, I imagine. Yeah, it's... Um, it was pretty tough. I mean, Forbes is a, a small community and, you know, everyone knows everyone in Forbes and, and, and that was the thing. Everyone sort of, there was 20, 24 of us on the trip. So everyone sort of knew someone that was on the trip. Um, so it did affect everyone, but that's, it, it does show how good a community Forbes is. Like they really got behind us and their support over the years, especially like even till now. Many others who'd been holidaying in Bali and were out of harm's way are still living with the trauma of the attack. Linda Hogg had earlier planned to go to the Sari Club that night, but made other plans. So there are lots of things, um, you know, like coincidences that happen or situations that happen. You think, what if, what if? The Wollongong physiotherapist has told ABC Illawarra she and her surgeon husband immediately went to work helping victims in a Bali hospital. For many of the victims, um, you know, the road to recovery is going to be a long, was a long and painful and probably now even emotional one. But even for the people who were involved, it comes back to you and you remember the enormity of it um, and how amazing it was that that we were able to get so many survivors back home again um, to Australia. The bombings were carried out by operatives of Jamaa Islamia, a Southeast Asian extremist group inspired by and with links to al-Qaeda. John Howard, who was Prime Minister at the time, believes efforts to prevent future terrorist attacks in the region since then have been successful. I have little doubt that the intelligence cooperation that we have first and foremost through the Five Eyes arrangement and also of equal importance in our own region, uh, the cooperation at a bilateral level between Australia and Indonesia and Australia and Malaysia uh, and Australia and Singapore. I think those three countries uh, have very finely tuned, high-level intelligence cooperation with Australia and it's been as far as I understand it, a completely bipartisan approach. But J.I. remains a serious threat. The ABC News Daily podcast spoke to Sydney Jones, one of the foremost experts on terrorism in Southeast Asia. And it was rebuilding not to undertake terrorist attacks, but to go back to its original goal, which was trying to establish an Islamic state in Indonesia, which would at the at some point involve violence, but not in the uh, in the short term. The ABC's Gavin Coote with that report. It is sixteen past five. You're listening to First Up here in RNZ National with me, Nathan Radere. Let's go to the UK. So the Prime Minister there, Liz Truss, is insisting that her tax cut program will go ahead and that she has no plans to cut public spending to pay for them. That's an incredible feat of mathematics. Joining us to explain how that's going to work, I think, from London is our correspondent, Henry Riley. Morning, Henry. How are you? Hello. I've got my calculator and I'm ready. <laughs> so, so what has she said? How's this going to work? So this all came about because it was Prime Minister's questions today. And this is the second one that Liz Truss has done as Prime Minister. The first one was before the Queen died. So obviously it's been quite a gap between the first and the second uh, PMQs, as it's known in the UK. And she was facing up against the Keir Starmer, the Labour leader. And as you referenced, quite surprisingly, 
she was saying that she's going to press ahead with tax cuts as we thought she would as we saw the mini the so-called mini budget the fiscal statement we had uh, uh last month proved that she was very serious about cutting taxes uh, and indeed we have another one next month and she's hinted that that is going to be a large part of it but she has said we're not going to cut public spending now this is puzzled people because the conservatives when they took office in 2010 to pay for uh, a lot of tax cuts and indeed to pay off the public debt did something called so-called austerity where they were cutting public spending at various departments the phrase used was quote trim the fat where there were some government departments where you know various amounts of money are being spent on x y and z and the conservatives said this is a, a good example of where we can trim the fat and, and cut public spending down but liz truss has said which is something that is coherent with the 2019 conservative manifesto uh, she's not going to cut public spending so public spending is going to stay the same and as you say people a bit concerned slash confused as to how that is going to happen how you can have tax cuts uh, uh, without actually bringing down public spending and keeping it at its same level. What's her argument? Well, her argument is that there's going to be so much growth because of uh, her tax cuts that she's not going to need to cut public spending because the economy is going to be going absolutely gangbusters, is the thought from uh, from number 10. Well, that's, yes, okay. Um, <laughs> I know that what happens when something like that happens over this side of the world, we'll have to wheel out the economists, uh, see see <laughs> their, their thought of things. Um, yes. Has that happened there, and what have they said? <laughs> um, people have been very critical. I mean, the Labour Party sort of tearing its hair out, or opposition, saying that we don't really understand where this mathematics uh, come from. The Treasury Select Committee, which indeed is chaired by a former Conservative Cabinet Minister, indeed a former Treasury Minister, Mel Stride, um, they've been quizzing various economists on it. I mean, just to give you a few, the chief economist uh, from Deutsche Bank UK said it was impossible to get there within five years. This is a 2.5% growth target, by the way, which many economists such as uh, Mr. Raja from Deutsche Bank say is completely unattainable. We've got the National Institute of Economic and Social Research. They are a very uh, sort of, uh, uh, you know, reliable slash impartial think tank they're equally as uh, as moody saying it would come in the form of boom and bust which is an era that people certainly don't want to return to then the resolution foundation which focuses on poverty they've been looking at the tax cuts and they are saying that they don't think there's a credible package that's going to work and apology i did ever speak it's actually halloween that we're going to have the next fiscal event so they've decided that the 31st of october the date of halloween is going to be the uh, the 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 date so i'm sure the tabloids will have an absolute field day when they uh, when they get the chancellor's fiscal statement that day oh this good we should um try and figure out which which horror headlines they'll go for that'll be good one. Yes. finally um actually let's, let's speak of actually unfortunately an actual horror here this is terrible tell me about this trial underway of the nurse charged with the murder of seven babies who who is Lucy? Lucy Letby. So Lucy Letby is from Hereford. She is 32 years old and she's on trial for 22 separate charges. Among the most serious of those, she's accused of seven counts of murder, um, killing babies and uh, attempting murder for 10 others. Now, the children in this case obviously aren't named for, for, for obvious reasons. There have been various uh, reports. The trial started on Monday and we're of course here Wednesday uh, in the UK so there's been three days of trial and there's been some pretty shocking uh, elements that have come out. She's been accused of smiling uh, after some of the deaths. She's been accused of one mother was concerned and she said trust me I'm a nurse. I stress this is all uh, alleged as well because Miss Letby is currently on trial. Um, there were various incidents as well where Miss Letby has been accused of trying to insert insulin and trying to insert water and trying to insert air 
into a child's bloodstream in order to kill them. She also is alleged to have uh, killed a child after the fourth attempt and then sent the parents a sympathy card saying she was extremely sorry that she wasn't able to save the baby. So it's a horrific case in the UK. It's going before the courts and there are there is really shocking details that are emerging uh, on, on a daily basis about the crimes that Miss Letby is alleged to have perpetrated. Yeah, it's absolutely horrible. Henry, thank you so much for your reports from the UK. Uh, there he is, Henry Riley in London. It's 21 past five and I'm Nathan Rarity here at First Up on RNZ National. So coming up, we go to News Hub's Europe correspondent, Lisette Raymer, to get the Ukrainian side of this arrest story about the Crimean Bridge explosion. And also we're going to meet a 23-year-old who might just be the mayor of Gore by the end of the day. It's interesting. We'll find out about it. Ruapehu businesses are calling for the government to help the failing RAL company, which runs the Whakapapa and Tūrua ski fields. Voluntary administrators have been called in to try and figure out whether the operation can be saved or if it will have to close. Ruapehu Alpine Lifts was hit hard, obviously, in the last two years with COVID, and then this year's ski season never really got off the ground because of a lack of snow. Our reporter Katie Todd spoke with business owner Paul Stiegelbauer, who runs the kitchen in Ohakuni. I guess in some ways it's not unexpected. We've literally, for the last few years, been wondering what has been going on. There's been a lot of conjecture. It's been quite stressful for everybody in that regard. Years on tenterhooks, essentially. Yeah, that's a pretty good way of saying it. You know, We haven't had the best few years, not only with COVID, but before that we had a major uh, avalanche on the hill that took out the top lift, which affected the season. So it's just been an ongoing thing, sort of not really getting the rub of the green, I guess. Is it sort of a a worry or does it provide some hope that voluntary administrators have stepped in now? I think that it's most probably a positive thing. The board from Mount Rupehu, I think most people, there's a general feeling within the community that they've just been out of touch for quite some time with the community and the the mountain, the monga going forward, you know, and and it's just what's needed in in a community and a wider community like ours. Are you willing to say what specific missteps they've made? I just think that they just haven't, you know, when you have a bunch of people that don't actually live or engage in our community, for instance, some of them are based in Queenstown, they don't have their, their finger on the pulse, you know, and I mean, it's a very re- unique situation among here, among Ruapehu and in, in the Tungarua National Park, our environment and, you know, the ability for what the staff and, and the people on the mountain can do within their concession. You know, it's a, it's a completely different scenario as compared to, say, Cadrona or etc. in the South Island. And how important is that business for the rest of the town here? It's, it's a, a massive. It's not just about people sliding around on skis and boards. It, it feeds the whole greater district. It's, 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 it's a symbiotic relationship throughout. You've, you've got the Whanganui River, you know, you've got hiking, you've got biking that's becoming more popular, and people are visiting the area because of the area. And uh, the mountain is, is just one part of that whole facet. And, you know, the options going forward are that uh, a, a buyer comes in, the administrators sort out the books of Ruapehu, or the ski field has to go. You know, what, what's your feeling of what might happen? I can't speak on behalf of the rest of the community, but on, on, from my personal point of view and, and perhaps some of the conversations that have been happening recently, I think there's a real strong feeling that the community, that there's three facets, community, central government and iwi, come together 
and work through the situation and they take governance and the management of, of the scenario. Specifically what would you like sort of the government to do? Well I'd like them to actually contribute. I mean we, as a as community here you know for years we just sit here and, and listen to how poor it is for Queenstown and poor old Queenstown and poor old Queenstown and poor old Queenstown. Well hey we had an eruption that affected our businesses, we didn't get any handouts, you know, we've worked through it and, you know, well, people say, you know, that, we're, you know, that we've got strength and, you know, and we'll always work through it, you know, we, we need assistance and, and that assistance is going to benefit everybody and the government will get that back through tax, you know, just through growth of businesses here and, yeah. If the ski field has to shut, what would that cost the town? I couldn't even tell you, it would just be like ripping the heart out of this community. I mean so many people have put so much time and effort into building really strong businesses here. There's families here, there's people that have worked in the mountain that bought houses and contributed. I really just don't know. I mean we've got at the moment rising roles in the schools, we've got people buying properties here, there's been an increase here. People really genuinely enjoy the whole of the Ruapahu district and you're seeing growth here and you're seeing people move here to work, you know, I, I just wouldn't, a, a big, bigger belief to be honest. That's Ruapehu business owner Paul Stiegelbauer and uh, who was speaking not only on behalf of himself but for a number of other so-called junction businesses which are at the northern end of the town. <laughs> Like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. Mm, it is half past five. Uh, this is the day of our life we call the 13th of October. Uh, it's an interesting day. Musical recordings, the Who. Yeah. About my I mean, yeah, it sounds good. Yeah, it's great. Turn the drums up a bit. This is probably too relaxing. Uh, that was The Who. They recorded My Generation on this day. The most widely known song with stuttering vocals at the time had reached number two in the UK. Uh, happy birthday today to Ian Thorpe. Aussie swimmer, 40 years old. Uh, today, Sasha Baron Cohen, who might be... Please might even be taller than Ian Thorpe. Uh, the British, British actor, 51 years old today. Paul Simon. Still going. 81 years old today, the American musician. Those are the uh, the three leading lights of birthdays I've got. Um, and here was a couple of happenings that happened on this day which became movies. So in 2010, amid great fanfare, do you remember this? The Chilean miners, they were pulled out of the mines, rescued 69 days after their mine collapsed in the Atacama Desert in Chile. I had a look, there was a movie made, it's called The 33. It came out in 2015 and the rating was 7.6 out of 10 in IMDb. Antonio Bar- Banderas played the minor Mario Sepulveda, um, which is pretty cool. I think if you're if you're Mario, you're going. I'm happy with the actor who played me. Let me say that. And then uh, in 1972, on this day, a flight chartered by a Uruguayan rugby team crashed in the Andes Mountains of Argentina. The wreckage was not located for more than two months. The incident garnered international attention, especially after it was revealed that the survivors had revolt, had resorted to cannibalism. That one, uh, the movie that came out was called Alive. It had a 7.1 on IMDb and featured a not at all Hispanic Hispanic Ethan Hawke playing a fellow called. Nando Parado, and that uh, are the hap- or those those are the happenings on the thirteenth of October. It's business. It's business time. That's what you're trying to say. You're trying to say, let's get down to business. It's business time. It's business. It's business 
Charles. Thanks for time too. Kia ora, Charles. How are you? Yeah, I'm well. I was just joking with Katrina off air. I was saying, let's not talk business. Let's just have four minutes of the Who won't get fooled again. <laughs> oh, there's a tune. There's a tune, isn't there? That is there? a well, tune, isn't it? One, the Mad Keith Moon drum solo towards yes. the... He just and he just holds it all together. Never mind. Just, no, let's talk could, about the here and now, not the nostalgia. He could hit him. Uh, let tell me about this. What, should we change the Reserve Bank writing instructions? What are these instructions? Well, they're called remits, and they're basically the writing instructions the government gives to the Reserve Bank. Uh, they review them over a five-year period, or every five years, and they're currently underway. I personally think there's a little bit of conflict here, asking the Reserve Bank to run the whole process, given that it's all about how they're run and they're running the process to review themselves. But never mind, the government makes the decisions. These are the things such as how big should that inflation target be? Was it you know, 1% to 3% as it is at the moment? Should the Reserve Bank be involved in issues of climate change? Uh, and should it take those into consideration when it's setting interest rates and other policy? Financial stability, right? Keeping the money system on an even keel so that we don't have ups and downs and in interest rates or erratic ones, that we don't have pressure on the banks. Should the Reserve Bank uh, be involved in taking into account the housing market uh, and the effect that its policies might have uh, in uh, you know, influencing prices? Uh, obviously, interest rates will always be influenced by that. Um, so these are the things that are being uh, reviewed. They've been through at least one round of public submissions, uh, and there seems to be quite strong opinion from those who've expressed it, saying a central bank doesn't need to be involved in climate change, and really... And that echoes uh, what uh, some of the, should we say, free market uh, and um, pro-business uh, think tanks have been saying. I love a is, think tank. <laughs> right, there's nothing like a think tank because you can, you can lose it. You, you can go swimming wherever you want in a think tank. But um, they've been saying basically that the Reserve Bank should be sticking to the knitting. In other words, it should be focused on tackling inflation. It should be focused on running uh, banks and supervising banks, maintaining the financial uh, system uh, in good condition. All the other stuff is just superfluous. It's frippery. It should be somebody else's uh, responsibility, not the central bank. Now, Adrian Orr in the past has pushed back against that, saying in the future, climate change is going to matter and it's going to affect the decisions that we have to make. Um, and I suppose he'd probably point to the fact, look, you see what's happening with a business like um, Rupert Alpine Lifts, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and they're saying, you know, and the banks who have money invested in that company, right? They might lose their money. They might not get it back. Now imagine that on a massive scale, right? Then the financial security of the banks comes into question. So the Reserve Bank would say, would say, well, we want to make sure that banks are safe. So we've got to be involved in thinking about climate change. So those are the sorts of things there. It's on the uh, people interested. Uh, all the submissions and summary of submissions are on the RBNZ website. It is interesting, even if it sounds awfully dry at 25 to 6 in the morning. No, you make it wonderfully not dry. Thank you very much. That's why we have you. That's Giles Beckford. You can hear more from the business team on Morning Reports, morning at 10 to 7. Let's go to the money markets now. Your New Zealand dollar is worth the following. 56.04. 
54.34 US cents, 89.34 Australian cents, 57.74 Euro cents, 50.58 British pence, 4.02 yuan and 82.28 Japanese yen. Well, yeah, Russia has continued to hit targets across Ukraine in the wake of the attack on the bridge in Crimea. Joining us now from Ukraine is News Hub's Europe correspondent, Lisette Reimer. Um, Lisette, it's, thank you very much for being here. It's always great to have you. Look, another attack has gone on this time in a market in the east of the country. Can you tell us about that and how many are confirmed dead? Sure. At the moment, uh, at least seven people have died in this attack. Another eight are wounded. Those numbers, of course, could rise. It only happened uh, recently. All of this information always takes a little while to trickle through. But as you say, another devastating attack on Ukrainian soil, this time in the east. Not totally unusual uh, lately, of course, to have intense fighting in the east. That has been uh, the main area uh, and the front line of this war for the last couple of months. In recent days, we've really seen the attacks spread out across the country. But today, it does seem to have really been focused and again on the east there. So uh, a, a devastating attack, as they all are, and, and this one even more so because it has killed at least seven people. Yeah. Look, we heard earlier in the show uh, from the Russian side of things, I'd like to find out the Ukrainian side of things here. So there have been arrests over the bridge attack in Crimea. What has the reaction been to that news where you are in Ukraine? Yeah, I think the bridge is an interesting one because obviously as soon as it happened, Ukrainians were delighted, not with the, the arrests, but with the attack itself. There was such a sense of jubilation and celebration and victory and that uh, this was a huge humiliation for Putin. It is his prized bridge, something that he had staked so much of his reputation on, so much of the the success and the coronation of annexing Crimea was pinned to this bridge that would link the annexed territory to Russia. So a lot of Ukrainians took a lot of joy in seeing that attack happen. However, the Ukrainian officials never took a ne- never took any responsibility for it officially, and even here in Ukraine, people are very coy over how much they will say or how much they are even willing to take responsibility for it as a Ukrainian in terms of, oh, no, we, we, we wouldn't know what to say about that. People don't want to uh, overstep and take responsibility for it. They're following the national stance on the matter. And I think uh, the news that there have been arrests, eight people, uh, I think, have been detained, but only uh, three of those have Ukrainian passports, is the latest we're hearing. So I think there is a mixed feeling here because there's obviously always going to be a sense of satisfaction among the Ukrainian people when any sort of pain is inflicted to Putin. Uh, but there is that balancing act where people are very uh, cautious to take any responsibility for it. Let's see, just before we jump out of here to news, you've been there a few months. I mean, we all watch in horror from this side of the world. Can you tell me, can you pick up the feeling of the Ukrainian people? Because it felt like they were making great headway maybe last week. I wonder if these attacks have dropped the mood a little. What's it like there? 
No, the, the, the mood hasn't changed. In fact, I think every time something like this happens, the resolve is strengthened, the argument, and certainly what the analysts and the experts are all suggesting is the case as well, is that Putin lashing out in the skies is because he is losing on the ground. What we've seen on the front line in the Far East is the Ukrainians make such incredible gains, regaining a lot of that territory that Putin had just come out and said he had annexed and was now considered to be Russian territory. So despite the obvious trauma and torture that has been inflicted this week with these random attacks all over the country, this massive escalation and aggression, people here are still as defiant as ever, and even more so perhaps now, they don't want to show any fear, they don't want to give Putin the satisfaction of showing that they have been affected by this week, they are buckling down and they are more determined than ever that this is a sign that he is weak and that he is feeling the hurt. He is in a desperate position. So even this week, they are feeling confident. Lisette, always appreciate you. Thank you so much uh, for making yourself available to us. That's Lisette Rima in Europe. 20 to 6 right now, I'm Nathan Radida here at First Up on RNZ National. So still to come on the show, our Deputy Prime Minister Grant Robertson is in the United States. We'll find out why and what he's doing there. Uh, we'll speak to him uh, on the ground over there. And also we speak to a young man who has a chance at becoming the youngest mayor in the country today. <laughs> The professionals of RNZ are the Morning Report crew, and it's Guy and Espinar who's with me this morning. Kia ora, sir. How are you? Kia ora, very well. What's going on today? We're looking at this issue of police photographing rangatahi, often young um, Māori uh, kids, mm. and uh, storing them. The uh, Privacy Commissioner and the IPCA said that they, that they were doing so unlawfully. Now now the police minister says, well, OK, well, let's change the law and, and say that we, oh, so we, we can do this. <laughs> so, so, so it would be lawful. So we're going to talk to the, um, the head of... Doesn't the, that mean when you did it when it was illegal, it's still illegal? Yeah, things a bit different that for the old, police. Yeah, was, <laughs> yeah, that's normally how that happens, isn't it? Like, yeah, so, yeah, okay. um, you, you know, and this is interesting, isn't it? Because the whole context is the whole tough on crime thing, you know, yeah. ram raids, uh, election year coming up. So there's a bit, a bit of that in the background. We're going to talk to Chris Carhill, who's the head of the police union. I mean, they, they want these extra powers. Mm. Uh, so we'll have a, ha, ha, have a good rake over the coals with, with, with him this morning. Also going to look at these uh, big moves yesterday on immigration. Government's been told it's still not doing enough to, to ensure foreign workers can get into the country. So we're going to have a look at that. And the Silver Ferns uh, beat Australia. They did! Uh, which was pretty cool. And so we're going to uh, ha- have a bit of a, a a bit of a match review of that and yep. look at what else is going to happen with the Constellation Cup. There's a few games coming up. When our daughter was an enthusiastic seven-year-old, there used to be this one athlete there who was at high school and you went, that kid is incredible. And her name is Grace and we're here. And, and it was funny, like I was thinking, and I said to her, remember she used to be at the court with you at the same time? Yeah, she played two, <laughs> two courts away from me. So yeah, that's about as close as we've got there to being a fern. But still, um, what a player. Oh, absolutely. That was so good. So, I, you know, I wasn't that optimistic heading into that. So, look, well done. Good one. Thank you very much. Thanks. Hey, look, local election results are in, and most towns know who's in charge, but there's a handful of places that are still waiting for the results, Gore being one of those. So, this is an interesting story, we thought. 23-year-old Ben Bell is neck and neck with the incumbent, Tracy Hicks, both awaiting with bated breath, obviously, for the special votes to be counted. And then only then will Gore know... Who's boss? But joining us now is Ben Bell. Who, uh, kia ora Ben. Hey, thank you for being here. By the end of the day, you could be the youngest mayor 
uh, in the country. At, at the last um, count that you saw, how were the votes going between yourself and Tracy Hicks? Uh, Kilda Nathan. Um, for last last counts I got, I was uh, thirteen ahead. So I was originally uh, eleven down. Uh, now I'm thirteen ahead um, with the preliminary result, and we have sixty-seven left to count. Okay, so I watched my baseball team play yesterday, and I was on the edge of my seat as I'm watching the score go up and down and up and down. You yourself <laughs> for this? What has that been like for you? Oh, it's been all over the place to, you know, being relatively sombre on uh, the Saturday after hearing the initial result and then to be just ecstatic on the Sunday and then, you know, four days of waiting and it, it possibly might even be five is what they're telling me. Um, it's just, yeah, yeah, been a, been a mix of emotions, really. So when you first did that, do you know what? I'm going to do it, are you? Yeah, I am. I'm going to do it. Did you expect to be even here you know, in, in, in a neck-and-neck neck race, or did you think, I'll just have a go at one time and then maybe it'll work for me? I mean, you've got to believe in yourself. When you enter these races, you have to think, oh, you know, I've definitely got a chance. But uh, to be completely honest, I, I thought it was a long shot, and then the more I talked with the community and realised how much there was a, a want for change, um, I knew more and more it was going to be, yeah, uh, more of a 50-50 split, and, and that's exactly what we got. You know, um, governance is an interesting thing to, to anyone, you know, like why does it speak to you and why does it appeal? Because as you said, like people want change, but then sometimes when people say they want change, they're not actually quite sure what they want. They just want something different, right? So to be there and get into governance, what, how does that speak to you and why do you go, yeah, I'd like to be involved in that? So our campaign message was actually really simple um, and, and it comes back to that, that concept around change which was back to basics. So just doing what councils are actually there and, and meant to be doing. So that's, that's water infrastructure, that's rural roads and that's um, for us it's, it's things like recycling because we don't have that here in Gore. So it's really basic stuff so that people can get that behind that change message and they don't really have to think too much about oh, what sort of change am I actually looking for. Hmm. What about the campaign side of things? Did you do you feel you did anything differently to perhaps how how it's been done in the past? Because you know, let's talk about it. Different generation here, Gen Z leading the way. So, how did you campaign? Oh, I actually we've got a we've got an aging community here in Gore. I mean, same with the rest of the country, but more so here in Gore. So it was actually taking the time to sit down with the elderly, you know, going to senior citizens, going to the likes of nattering knitters and and things like that and talking to the older community, um, where a lot of people thought that I wouldn't be able to get the votes, you know, they would just think, oh, old people think I'm too young. But they were actually some of the biggest supporters um, around saying, no, we should have young people in government. I think this is a really good idea. So so it was also mixing that in with, with the new media as well, you know, your social media campaigns and things. We also did all sorts of clever bits and pieces, like we had... Um, a projector on the side of a big building that had our had our billboards on it. So just some some different um, types of media out there as well. Nice. What do you normally do, Ben? Uh, so I'm a software developer by trade. So I run my own software development company, uh, Random Forty Two. Um, so I help um, startups and small businesses with uh, tech projects. Well, Ben, uh, it's been a pleasure to speak to you. Um, you're obviously an out there and you're a go-getter, whether it's setting up your own company or having a crack at, um, at the Meralty. Uh, we will look forward with interest. Ben Bell, thank you very much for your time this morning, sir. Uh, yeah, what an interesting race that is. So I suppose we'll find out once the special results come in, and I think that should be done by the end of the day. But uh, Ben Bell and Tracy Hicks, both um, the leading candidates for the Meralty, of course.
Joining us now from the USA, we have the Deputy Prime Minister, Grant Robertson, who I believe is in New York City. Kia ora, sir. How are you? Kia ora, Nathan. Not too bad, actually. It might be a little bit noisy in the background behind me. We're just getting off a bus here in New York. <laughs> is that, I hope it's a bus full of people yeah, you know and not just one of those random New York buses. No, no, it is. It's a bus full of New Zealanders who are here on the uh, on the business delegation we've got over here via the Air New Zealand uh, inaugural flight, um, direct flight to New York. And so, yeah, we've just had an amazing morning actually at the uh, Brooklyn Nets. Uh, Sean Marks, the New Zealander, is the general manager there, and uh, he's just uh, taken us on a tour of their training facility, which was absolutely amazing. Yeah, New Zealand are running a massively huge business there as well. So you're there with this business delegation. Tell us, uh, how many have you got with you and what are you hoping to achieve and how are you hoping to sell New Zealand to the Americans? Yeah, look, we've got representatives of dozens of, of companies and businesses here, ranging from you know the likes of Zespri and Fonterra and the University of Auckland and obviously in New Zealand itself, through to through to smaller um, software developers, uh, people involved in the in the primary sector. Um, yes, yeah, huge range of different businesses and organisations. Naitahu and Waikato Tainui, uh, Iwi are both through are represented here as well. So really, the the, the big game here is is to reconnect face to face, to learn about the American economy, the opportunities, particularly on the east coast of America where, you know, we haven't had a direct flight before um, and there's a lot of opportunity for New Zealand here. So, yeah, nothing beats the face-to-face contact in that regard. How did the direct flight go? Did we make it up okay and all the luggage and everything? Yeah, everything made it. It tends to be it tends to be the uh, coming back that's the issue. Uh, There's a bit harder going into the into the wind and with the wind behind you, as they say at the Basin Reserve. And so, um, yeah, they uh, you know they they've made some adjustments to their loading and the way that they are, are going to be doing the return flights. But now the trip up was magnificent. Not having to deal with our airport. Uh, definitely a plus. <laughs> hey, what, what now? You're going to be uh, meeting, I think, the US Fed's Jerome Powell. What are you going to be discussing? Yeah, well, obviously he's the equivalent of Adrian Orr um, in terms of the US, when the, the governor of the Reserve Bank, um, Federal Reserve here, and and everybody will know that the increasing interest rates that the um, US Federal Reserve has put in place have, in part, led to you know our dollar um, losing a bit of value as people. Oh, and that's the sound that happens when your WhatsApp connection sort of pops. Uh, Jeremy is just uh, phoning the Deputy Prime Minister back to see if we can uh, reconnect there. But that was uh, quite interesting there. So uh, obviously taking a huge business delegation up with them, a pretty big one there to go around. Uh, And this is, I guess, in the attempts to try and get, like you said, uh, trade happening again and and happening face-to-face. Just want to ask too if we can uh, get... Uh, Grant Robertson back, I think we do. Oh, yes, we do. We're, we're back on the line yes. now, I think, talking Sorry to the bus. That. No, that's yeah. right. No, no, you were just telling us about Jerome Powell. He's the equivalent of Adrian Orr. And what were you going to be hopefully discussing? Yes, yeah, so obviously, you know, as, as US interest rates have been going up, um, that's what's caused the New Zealand dollar to drop down a little bit. Um, people are, are heading to the US dollar as they do when, when they're feeling a bit uncertain. So if you're looking to find out from him where he sees the the market going uh, in the US, where the US economy is going to be at, where the pressures are there around inflation, around unemployment, um, that's going to have a heavy influence on the way the New Zealand economy performs over the next uh, year or so. And so, yeah, to be picking his brain, um, helping him understand where we're at as well, obviously, uh, but a really good opportunity to talk to someone who's hugely influential in the global economy, not just the US economy.
I know that just recently our Prime Minister has has been where you are and I noticed uh, it was a great time for New Zealand because she was in the centre of every of every photo that was taken there. So can you tell me, is now a chance, will you get a chance to try and make any play to get, say, like a, a free trade deal between New Zealand and the States? Yeah, well, after I finish here in New York, I head down to Washington, D.C., where uh, the World Bank and IMF uh, annual meetings are. And that's a real opportunity for me. So along with Jerome Powell, I'm going to be meeting with senior figures in the Biden administration, uh, with other finance ministers from around the world as well. And, yeah, that's the opportunity for us to do that. I think, you know, the U.S. is about to have it term congressional elections, that's going to have a pretty big influence on whether or not a free trade agreement would be possible. Um, there's a, a lot of work to do to get to that point, but we've got to be here and having those discussions to lay the ground for that. You know, for example, we know the US is interested in our um, the CPTPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Um, that's an opportunity for us to talk about the value of those sort of trade agreements. So, yeah, you know, you build these things up in blocks and being here talking, building off the PM's work, that that's our job this week. Can can you just help me understand with the trade with the free trade deal? I, I I know that we are very keen on it. When the blocks come through from the United States, and I'm talking about over the last decades or so when they haven't wanted one, what's generally the biggest pushback from the United States against the free trade deal? Oh, look, there's a sort of high level of subsidies and protectionism within the. Uh, within the U.S. system. And so, you know, free trade deals require countries to start to remove those subsidies, start to remove tariffs. And there's a lot of sectors where that is um, still in place. So that's tough. And it might be, in our case, the agricultural sector and other free trade agreements. It might be in manufacturing where it's a big issue. Ultimately, any free trade agreement in the United States has to go through the Congress. And, you know, that requires getting a majority of senators and House of Reps members to agree with it, and there's a bit of work to do because there's a lot of vested interests within the US system. Yeah. So tell me, yeah, I know that you've just been to the Brooklyn Nets organisation, which, as you said, run by Sean Marks, a very tall New Zealander from Rangitoto College. Uh, tell me that. What is the plan for the rest of the day for yourself and the, and the delegation? Yeah, well, we're just about to head into a couple of briefings um, by by senior US and New York uh, business people. Uh, they're going to be giving us an insight into this particular market here in New York. Uh, a lot of the businesses that are on the delegation have some um, contacts and contacts here, but would like to do more. So two lots of uh, briefings on that. And that builds on yesterday where we, we had briefings more around the big picture in the US, the US-China relationship, how that might affect New Zealand. So, you know, I noticed the business People around me are really absorbing that information, and um, yeah, it's it's been a, it's been a really good visit and such a great opportunity to actually be face to face with people. Good stuff. Hey, uh, thank you very much, sir. There he is, the Deputy Prime Minister of New Zealand, Grant Robertson, there with that business delegation in uh, New York City. It's quite incredible that uh, that facility too that the uh, New York Nets, uh, sorry, the Brooklyn Nets, whoops, uh, have got. They were once upon a time. The New York Nets and the Jersey Nets. Anyway, uh, this has uh, been uh, first up for the 13th of October. Uh, This was on our This Day in History, the song recorded by The Who. Talking about my generation, remember that you can uh, listen to First Up whenever you like. Take it with you by downloading the podcast uh, and we're in your ears anytime you would like. Uh, Morning Report is next with Guyon and Kim. Remember, watch like no one's dancing. There you go. We'll be back in your ears. Ah, poor, poor. Sensation.